So turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. We're continuing our series, our short series, uh, which is Romans 2 and 3 with a, a series in between there. But as you're turning there, I want to read a very familiar parable out of Luke 18. You don't have to turn there, but just listen as you're, as you're there because I think it has some, it just connects to what we're going to talk about. Luke 18, the, this is uh, Luke writing. He says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up in the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner." I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. If you notice at the beginning of that passage I read, Luke gives the meaning of the parable he's about to share. That doesn't always happen as we read, but Luke says right off the bat, this parable of the Pharisee and tax collector was for those who trusted in themselves that they believed they were righteous enough for salvation. And, and in so doing, they looked down upon others. But the Pharisee was, was this one who was a hypocrite. He was too easily impressed with himself. He had lived the life of a good Jew, so he convinced himself that he was okay. But Jesus is telling us in this parable that he's not okay. In fact, he's in trouble. The tax collector, on the other hand, understands himself as a sinner and won't even look to heaven, but cries out to God for mercy. And Jesus says he goes home justified, made right with God. But the Pharisee wasn't. I I wonder if this parable was on the mind of Paul as he's writing to the church in Rome, especially in the section we're going to look at this morning. Paul has been making his argument for the need of the Jews to trust in Christ alone for salvation. And, and we come this morning to Romans 2, 17 through 24, and how he exposes their hypocrisy and how they're living. And his message to them is of great importance. The hypocrisy damages the name of God and ultimately condemns them. And the same is true for us this morning. So here's my main idea. Hypocrisy damages the name of God. And since I've been asking questions as my outline this series, I'll continue to do that. Three questions. Do you really call yourself a Christian? Do you really live any different than the world? Do you really boast in God more than yourself? Hopefully I'll be able to answer those questions as we walk through this. And that's the main idea. If you get anything from the sermon, that's one to log away, write it down. As we will find, uh, there's nowhere to hide from the judgment of God except in Jesus Christ. I recognize as I spent time reading through this passage, spent time with the staff discussing it, this might be a heavy message for the listener. So I want to begin this morning by making sure that you hear me that the answer to hypocrisy in your life is to repent and trust in Jesus Christ, and to, can do, to do that continually. 
The only way out of this mess is to be found in Jesus. And his offer of salvation is as good this Sunday as it was last Sunday. And our only hope is Jesus. So if you haven't already, turn with me to Romans chapter 2. If, you're, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one there in the seats in front of you. If you're unfamiliar looking at a Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers, and we're in Romans chapter 2, and, and we're going to read verses 1 through 24, just to make sure we have the full context as we dive into verses 17 through 24 this morning. So Romans 2, and follow with me as I read, starting at verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury." There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus." But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you. So point number one, question number one, do you really call yourself a Christian? Paul has been making his journey in preaching the gospel to the church at Rome by discussing those who are outwardly rejecting God and his revelation in chapter 1. We looked at that over a year ago. But in chapter 2, Paul is taking his time now to show the church how they too have rejected God and perhaps had been believing a false gospel of works. 
And after warning them that God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, he finally directs his words to that imaginary listener and identifies him as a Jew. Verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. So let me ask, have you ever been around people who believe that they're better than you? A smug superiority that oozes from them? This seems to be possibly true from the Jews that Paul is writing to. They're, they're proud of their nationality. They're, they're pleased to be Jews. And that's why Paul says that they boast in, in verse 17. They're, they're taking pride in their Jewishness because they have the law, because they have the connection to God. And, and they believe that they're better than everyone else because God had chosen them and that their lineage would, would really seal the deal for them, would bring them on top. And Paul is going to address this claim that the Jews had a better pedigree than anyone else simply because they were God's covenant people. And their first claim for smugness was Moses and the law. And now their second is the alignment with Abraham. You see, having the law, is, is what he's going to say, is it brings no advantage to the Jews if they refuse to submit their lives to the law, ultimately to God. See, their problem was that they had turned their Jewishness into a magic formula for protecting themselves from any harm or even God's anger toward them. It's like they, they believed that they had the, the Jewish ID card that they could flash at any time to get out of trouble. I don't know if we have any policemen here, so I hope I don't offend you, but I see it in shows, so it must be true, or movies. It's kind of like policemen, when they're driving and they get pulled over, right? They kind of slowly pull out the badge and be like, I'm one of you, let me go. I don't know if that's true, sorry. That's where my, my mind went to. The law for the Jews was, was somewhat in their mind, this automatic shield, like, we're good. Because we're God's people. We have the law. And, and, it, and it wasn't. It wasn't true. The law was not going to, their, their, their Jewishness, even though they had the law, was not going to protect them from the wrath of God. Their boasting wasn't simply misplaced. Their boasting was evil in the eyes of God. Now, let's pause for a moment about boasting. Psalm 34.2 says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Psalm 44, 8, in God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to our name forever. See, boasting in God in the right way is a good thing. We should be doing this. It, as you learned in, in the equipping class, boasting in God is the glory in God. So we should be boasting in Him. But all too often, the Jews lacked humility, and their boasting wasn't so much in God and what He had done for them, and his supply and grace for them, they were boasting in their status, in their national pride as God's people. They were boasting in their privileges, not in their God. And they had great privilege as God's chosen people. They were honored to have the law and to hear from God, and their privileges were to be used for others, for God's glory and not themselves. 
And it was established from, from God and His Word for the Jewish, Jewish people. In verses 19 and 20 in Isaiah 42, God had told Israel that He had called them to be a light for the Gentiles, to open the eyes of the blind. They had a responsibility because they had the law, and they were given the truth of the law. And with that truth came responsibility for living out the law in obedience and being a light to the dark world where they lived. And God was expecting Gentiles to see the, the virtues of Judaism and come to the Jews for instruction and understanding. And they were to be teachers because they had the law, the Word of God. But the Jews turned away from that and looked at themselves as the fountain of all knowledge. And they believed that, that only them, these privileged people, they were the focus. See, the Torah was a beacon, was to be a beacon of truth and justice for a lost and unjust world. And, and Israel was to be there as, as a light to show the world of who God was. It wasn't that their Jewishness or having a law was wrong, but it's their attitude about their nationality. And more clearly, as we see, it's about their morality. They were relying on those two things, making moral things and doing moral things. That, that's what became their system of salvation, as we see in the Gospels. And, and what we call this is the gospel of moralism. This is one of the biggest lies in the world today. It's the belief where people compare themselves to others who, who notice that they're much more decent. They're, they're better people than others. And those out there don't live as, as good as we do. And what Paul is doing is exposing the lie of moralism that has seeped into the lives of the Jews in the church of Rome. And they believed the lie that since they were chosen people and since they had been given the law and since they were really doing the, 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 the outward signs, and there wasn't no outward scandal, that, that everything is great. They, they were God's saints. And in so doing, they had believed a false gospel, a gospel of moralism that would promise the favor of God and the satisfaction of God's righteousness to them. And in their minds, if only they would just behave. They wouldn't do big, gross sins. Here's the thing, though. The gospel of moralism has seeped into our churches, into our homes as well. It's preached on our TVs. We just got through an election cycle. It'll be preached next election cycle, the gospel of moralism. And it seems as though, if we're honest, we're all born to be desiring to be moralists. We want to earn our way. We want to do the right things. We want to be looked upon by others as, as doing and being right. But even more so, it gets heavy when we become parents and we have kids in our home. I'm going to pick on you parents again. Maybe I do that a lot. Just know I'm picking on myself. Because we gravitate as parents to be moralist parents. We don't mean to, I honestly believe that, but we begin to teach our kids how to behave rightly, how to talk to other children, how to obey, what we should do, and whenever, when they do it, we ask, what do we do? We reward them, 
right? Either I'm not connecting with you or it's really hurting. I'm not sure. But when you're potty training a kid and they go number one, what do you give them? Candy, right? Good job. When they clean their room, we give them money. When they do well in school, we give them that smartphone they've wanted. And we don't mean to teach morality as parents. I really believe it's from a heart that wants to encourage our kids to do the right thing. But the hazard is, is that we're really good at falling into this trap of training little moralists. Now, you're not off the hook either, church. Because you do it too with our kids, with my kids. Oh, you did so well sitting in the service. When mom asked you, you did so well saying yes, mom. And it's a good intent, I believe. But what we're doing is we're encouraging this this moralism in, in the way they act. And if we don't, as parents and as a church, bring the gospel into it, we will develop beautiful, shiny little people. And part of us, if we're honest, really want that. Moralism can produce unforgiven sinners who are potentially better behaved. But they're not saved. And their false belief and their performance will be exposed one day. Christ will make sure of it, as we saw in verse 11. So let me ask, parents. Do you want a fully obedient child who always does the right things, who's quick to listen and do what you say, who will one day go to school, get a good job, get married, and have obedient kids of their own, but who is never a Christian? You have to answer that question. Is that what you want? Is that the pursuit that you have? Good people, but headed to hell. If the answer is no, then we have to faithfully preach the gospel to our kids. You have to tell them the reason why you obey mom and dad is because God, in his wisdom, in his perfectness, placed a mom and dad in your home to lead you and to teach you. And when they submit to mom and dad, they're ultimately learning to submit to God. And when they disobey you and you come and you have to punish them, you give them hope of the gospel. Don't punish them, parents, and just leave them flailing, wondering if there is any hope out of their behavior in that moment. You give the gospel because that's our hope. We strive, we should strive, not just as mom and dads, but as church members, to be experts at bringing the gospel to bear on all aspects of the day. And it's hard. I'm just being honest, it is hard. And this is why we need the church. You know, I'm all about talking about football scores and fantasy football for a few moments, but maybe what the discussion should be as young parents is saying, I'm struggling to bring the gospel to bear in my home. 
How are you doing this? Oh, you're not. Can we work together to, to talk about the gospel more than anything else that we talk about? Because we need that as parents, and our kids desperately need that, so that we don't develop and train up little moralists who believe if they just do the right things and act the right way, that somehow God's just going to give them a pass. It's not true. We know it's not true. We can think through it and think that's not true. But then in practice at home, we forget. And we're tired. And we just want them to go to bed. And then we check out. The gospel of Christ transforms unforgiven sinners into your home, into adopted sons and daughters. And the hope for you, mom and dad, is that your daughter or son will become your sister or brother one day. This just blows my mind. But that's the final goal, parents, that one day, by God's grace, we will stand arm in arm, worshiping him, not as, I'm your dad, you're my daughter, but as brother, and for me, sisters. Because when we've been around for 5,000 years, 30 years difference in age won't really matter. That's the hope. And so we train them to rely on God, to admit their sin, and to run to Jesus for forgiveness. See, the Jews failed. This is what Paul is bringing out. You're wanting this gospel of moralism, and it won't save. And and Paul, in his grace for them, is not going to leave them just floundering. He's actually going to show them themselves. He's going to actually show them how they have this false belief in what salvation is and who they're trusting in. And so the question that I began with, do you really call yourself a Christian? If we call ourselves Christian, then there will be evidence of salvation in our lives. And that evidence, most primarily, is that we regularly repent of our sins and trust in Jesus. Not just once to get into heaven so we can get the certificate and put it on our wall. But that's our life, a life of repentance. So number two, question number two, do you really live any different than the world? If you call yourself a Christian, do you really live any different than the world? Is there any distinction between you and your life and your neighbor's life? So Paul continues in verse 20, an instructor of the foolish, he's talking about the Jews here, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? See, Paul is essentially saying to them, because of your moralism, your hypocrisy is showing They could try to hide it, but Paul is, in in, in love, exposing it for them. And and the root issue in this passage is how the Jews respond to their covenant privileges. Knowing and having the law without obedience equals hypocrisy, especially as they teach it to others and refuse to do it. 
If teachers continually fail to live out what they're teaching, they are essentially disqualifying themselves as a teacher. That's why James warns us in James 3.1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. See, with, with more knowledge comes more responsibility to ob- obey the knowledge that we have. And, and if we're going to teach others, we, we need to seek to obey what we teach. Now, the answer, if you read James 3.1 and think, I don't want that, so I'm never going to be a teacher, that's not the answer. At least that's not my answer. Now, for some of you, I might say that is the answer. But for others, if our, if our, just, our response initially is, well, that's, that just seems hard, so I'm just not going to do it. Now, I think the point of what James is saying is, is to be aware, most definitely, but to rely on God as you teach. Continue to submit your lives to him as you teach. See, if, if your initial reaction is just, this is, just, just this seems hard, I'm, I'm not going to do it because it seems hard, then you're resolving that you, you really don't want to press in and, and seek to be obedient to God's word with the help of others so that you can teach. And, and the sad response is that it leaves us as a church family in dire straits because we would love to develop more teachers. See, the answer in all of this is to lean into the Word of God and seek to obey it and apply it with the Spirit's help. The answer is to be honest with our struggles, to be obedient to God's Word, and to seek out help from others to help us grow. It's sanctification that we should desire in those moments. But let me drill in a little bit more specific. Men who are here who desire to be in ministry someday, you desperately need to apply these verses to your life in your heart. If you desire to preach or teach one day, you need to regularly sit under the preaching and teaching of God's Word and apply it to your life. Good and faithful preachers and teachers love to learn from good, faithful preaching and teaching, and they seek to follow their own teaching. See, as Paul has pressed right on the nerve of the Jews here, they're not listening to their own teaching. They love to teach. They have this privilege to have the law and to expound the law to others, but they don't want to apply it to themselves. And he's saying your life indicates that you're refusing to sit under your own teaching. See, it's possible to possess the riches of transcendent wisdom from the Word of God, to know the the deepness of theology, and to wow audiences with your auditory mastery over words and fail to teach yourself. The great 20th century British preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones shows us how this applies not just to teachers, but to us as Christians. He says, as you read your Bible day by day, do you apply the truth to yourself? What is your motive when you read the Bible? Is it just to have a knowledge of it so that you can show others how much you know and to be able to argue with them? Or are you applying the truth to yourselves? As you read the Bible, do you say to yourself, this is me? 
This is what it's saying about me. Are you allowing the Scripture to search you? Otherwise, it can be very dangerous. There is a sense in which the more you know of the Bible, the more dangerous it is to you if you don't apply it to yourself. You think of the Bible that way as something possibly dangerous? The more we grow as Christians, the more we need to read the Word, sit under the Word, and teach the Word to ourselves so that we would obey the Word. Men, if you're training for ministry, are you able to preach the Word to yourself before you get up and preach it to others? If not, you shouldn't assume a pulpit. See, Paul here is not objecting to the the Jews teaching others. Again, that's how God had established it. That was their calling. But he's saying, are you actually listening to your own teaching before you teach others? See, the Bible truly does become more dangerous for us if we refuse to sit under the Word as we read and as we study. Let's bring this home to everyone. Parents, I'm going to pick on you again. Do you require your children to obey the Word in ways that you refuse to obey it yourself? Bobby, you should go to Sunday school every week, but we're going to go get coffee. Do you you chastise your children for speaking unkindly to their siblings as you lash out against your spouse? You need to humble yourself and receive the teaching that you give to your children. Teachers here at church, do you teach the Bible without teaching it to yourself first? Or are you, you're really good at teaching the lesson that comes next, but you're going to skip over that part because I don't want to do that. You know, this is one of the reasons why I love and also am stressed when I preach through a book of the Bible, because I don't get a choice to leave out things. I had a preacher, pastor years ago, who said, I, I asked him when I was new at the church, do you preach expositionally through a book of the Bible? And he said, yes, and I skip chapters. Why is that? It's hard. Yeah, it is. As teachers, do you, do you do that in the lesson? Or do you teach it and then refuse to obey it? My advice to you is to repent and apply the word to your life with the Spirit's help and ask for help. Ask for help from your spiritual leaders. Elders, pastors that are here, those aspiring to that. You know, the weight is heavier on us in some ways. We have to sit under the word first and allow it to change us before we ever bring it to God's people. We won't obey perfectly, 
If you're new to our church and you're looking for a perfect pastor, I'll send you to a few others you can visit and see if it works out. But I should, should seek to obey God's word with the help of others. And before I preach or before any man preaches in this pulpit or teaches in the equipping class, we have to sit under the word. We will be held with greater strictness. It's a high privilege to hold God's word and to declare it to others. And so we need to press on and do it with faithfulness, seeking to apply God's word to ourselves. And we need to ask others to help us. Asking if we're married our spouse to say, is this true of me? To asking fellow brothers in the church, do you, do you see this evidence to my life? Before we get up and declare it to other people. Now the Jews were teaching others. But as Paul is rightly saying, they weren't checking their hearts. At the end of verse 21 says, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? See, stealing, adultery, and, and sacrilegious uh, aspects were all classic harm, hallmarks of Israel's rebellious history. You can read about that in Jeremiah 7.9 and Hosea 2. They would preach against stealing, essentially, he's saying, and they would steal themselves in some way. They taught that you shouldn't commit adultery, but they were, at the very least, they were doing what Jesus defined as adultery in Matthew 5 by looking at others lustfully. They claim to detest idolatry, but somehow they're making their living on idolatry. So I'm going to say, really honestly, I spent an hour and a half on that third one, and I don't know what Paul is saying. So if you and your wisdom know, please come tell me later. It's tough. I don't know what he's saying here. You abhor idols and do you rob temples? I'm not certain. I think he's saying that they're somehow profiting over these false religions, but I'm not certain. I don't know if that makes you uncomfortable or not. Sorry. They essentially needed to turn away from idolatry. See, the question for them that Paul is driving in, and the question for us is, we might know our Bible really well, but do we practice our Bible that we know really well? Meaning, are you known for not only knowing the Word, but also seeking to obey the Word? The professing, professing Christians who, do not, who are not genuine Christians are actually worse than someone who doesn't claim to be a Christian at all. There are professing Christians all over who are not really Christians. They speak all the right things, but in reality, Christ hasn't changed their lives. And unbelievers, those who reject the gospel, look at religious unbelievers and think their God is fake, that their religion is a sham. And through that hypocrisy, the name of God is damaged. I think that's one of the main points in this text. 
that the name of God is damaged through hypocrisy. Hypocrisy hurts us and the church, most definitely. But more than that, it hurts God. We'll see that more in, in point number three, question number three. So friends, have we, be humble, have we been humbled yet through God's word? You know, I, I said this to someone in the office this last week. I, I felt as though preaching through Romans 2 that I need to preach it from the floor. Because by no means do I think I've arrived. Now, I don't need to spend the next 20 minutes confessing my sin to you because I don't know how profitable that would be for us as together. But I've been humbled. You know, at the end of that parable I read at the beginning of, this, of the service, he gives us the, the meaning, right? I said in verse 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So no one enters the kingdom of God on the basis of their own, unrighte- their own righteousness. No one enters the kingdom of God apart from Jesus Christ. And no human being can acquire righteousness on their own to fulfill the absolute and perfect demands of the holy law of God. It is by grace and grace alone that we can ever come into the presence of God. All of us, all of us stand guilty before the righteousness of God, Pharisee and tax collector alike. And the difference between those two men that we talked about at the beginning wasn't that one was righteous and the other was a sinner. They were both sinners. The difference was the tax collector knew he was a sinner and he repented of his sin. And the same can be said of every person that's seated here this morning. We have Pharisees and tax collectors in our midst right here. Those that have chosen to believe that they can get a relationship with God through their behavior, through their right thinking, through their effort. And they come week after week believing that they're God's child. And then there are those who know they can never earn a relationship with God on their own, no matter how hard they try. And they come humbly before God. The question is, which one are you? Are you innocent or are you guilty? Charles Spurgeon used to tell a story of a duke who boarded a galley ship and went below to talk with the criminals who were manning the oars. He asked several of them what their offenses were, and almost every man claimed that he was innocent, blaming someone else or accusing the judge of taking a bribe. But young one, one young fellow, however, surprised the duke and answered, Sir, I deserve to be here. I stole some money. No one is at fault but me. I'm guilty." Upon hearing this, the duke was enraged and shouted, you scoundrel, what are you doing here with all these honest men? Get out of this company at once. And the duke ordered that the prisoner be released. He was set free while the rest continued to tug the oars. The key to the prisoner's freedom was his admission of guilt. And this is true for us in salvation. Until you are willing to admit, I am a sinner, I need salvation, I need Jesus, you will not experience freedom from guilt and condemnation. 
Have you ever said on your own before God, I am guilty? Do you even know what you're guilty of? See, sometimes we can lead people to just say that, but they're uncertain. What am I guilty of? I'm going to tell you. God, our holy creator and righteous judge, created all of us to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. And we don't do that. All the way back to Adam, our representative in the garden, we choose ourselves every day, all day. We do what we want. We desire what we want. We hurt others to get what we want. We steal, we lie, we cheat, all to build up ourselves and to keep ourselves secure. And because we all live this way, we all deserve death, a spiritual separation from God in hell. And so we're all guilty Every single one of us in this room is guilty. And God knows this and sent His Son, fully God, fully man, for our justification, taking our sin upon Himself on the cross. And get this, He takes our sin and we get His righteousness. Isn't that the best news, friends? He takes our self-righteousness upon Himself, and He gives us eternal, free, and holy righteousness that only God could provide through Jesus Christ. And He steps in when we could do nothing to save ourselves, and He dies for our sins because we couldn't do it ourselves. And He rose again on the third day, and God accepted His sacrifice which makes us then perfect in Jesus Christ. Now, you've heard it before. You've probably said it yourself. No one's perfect. And we say that as as some sort of uh, confession about ourselves, but it's not enough to admit that that you're a sinner. You have to actually admit of your own confession too. In fact, to acknowledge that we're sinners but never repent of it is blasphemous to God. See, the tax collector in that, in that parable admits he's a sinner, he confesses it before God, and begs for God's mercy. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't whitewash it. He doesn't say, that's just the way that I am, or the history, or the things that I've experienced it. No, he confesses it, and repents of it, and begs God for mercy. And what happens to him? He goes home justified. He goes home made perfectly right with God. And in that context, if if anyone within the community of Judaism who would go home from the temple justified, it, it wouldn't have been the tax collector. He was despised in his lifestyle and occupation. There was no human way from their vantage point that he could go home justified, made right with God. But God works not in human ways, and he does what is humanly impossible. He saves him. From their vantage point, the Pharisee would have been the one to go home justified. He was the one that was religious. He was the one that was dependable. He was the one who was tithing his, his money to pay the salaries of people so that they could preach. And what we find out is he goes home and he's not justified. But here's the scary thing. He thinks he's justified. 
the Pharisee went home from the temple unaccepted, unjustified, and unaware that he's still under God's wrath. You need to let that sink in. He believed he was all right. Do you see how deceptive moralism can be? See, it convinces us that everything's okay. He was really good at seeing the flaws in others. But he couldn't see them in himself. If perhaps we would examine ourselves as relentlessly as we examine others, we might discover reasons for us to repent too. Some of you might go home today just like this Pharisee, convinced that you're okay, and I don't want that. I want us to see ourselves in light of what the Word of God says about us. Self-righteous people will be barred from heaven, plain and simple. Jesus decides who is righteous, and it will only be those who humble themselves and continue to trust in Christ alone for salvation. It does not depend on your feelings or your achievements. It depends on God all and Him alone. And so the call for you, friends, is to turn from your sins of trusting yourself and trusting Christ alone and to keep doing that. Keep trusting in him. Your self-righteousness is not enough. You need Christ's righteousness. And when we have Christ's righteousness, our boasting changes. It's true. We, we still boast, but we don't boast in ourselves. We boast in the one who made us. But is it true of you? Question number three, do you really boast in God more than yourself? Paul ends this section this morning by bringing us back to the charge that, he, that their boasting was misplaced and misused. Look at verse 23 and 24. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among Gentiles because of you. You see, as as lawbreakers themselves, they had lost their right to boast in the law. They had the law and they refused to allow the law to transform their lives and to worship God. And they, they dishonor God. The term dishonor here means to insult or disgrace another. And by their failure, they had given the Gentiles an excuse to heap scorn on God and, and Judaism. This is where Paul then quotes Isaiah 52.5. That's the text that Trevor read at the beginning of the service this morning. Isaiah 52.5 says, Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continuing all the day, my name is despised. See, by Israel failing to submit themselves to God, to submit themselves to the law, to seek to obey and follow him faithfully, they had caused others on the outside to blaspheme God. Do we understand what it means to blaspheme God? To blaspheme means to slander, to revile, or to rail against. And the surrounding nations, the surrounding nations around Israel would rail against God because of the hypocrisy of the people of God. 
They were given so much of the law and their, their covenant relationship with God, and they squandered it. And God sent them into exile. But listen to this passage, Ezekiel 36, 16 through 21. It gives more detail than the Isaiah passage. Verse 16, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by, the, by their ways and their deeds. In the verse 18, so I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled. I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed through the countries in accordance with their ways and their deeds. I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned, they profaned my holy name. And that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord. And yet they had to go out of this land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Why was the hypocrisy of Israel so offensive to God? because they spoke and acted like they knew God, but by their lives they showed that they didn't know God at all. See, the exile of Israel was the direct result of sin, of disobedience to God's word, the law, causing then the name of God to be mocked among the nations. And as a result, the world mocked and reviled God because of God's people. His holy name was damaged because of the people's hypocrisy. See, friends, God cares very deeply about His name and His glory, and He deserves to be worshiped, and God's people defamed Him. What about us, friends? Is your family, friends, coworkers, and neighbors interested in God by simply living close in proximity to you? Or is there hypocrisy in your life that causes them to revile God, to mock Him, to say, if, if that's what Christianity is, I don't want anything to do with that. You know, we know, I'm sure most of us can think of some Christian leader in the last two or three years that failed in a very public way. And when a Christian leader in a public way fails, the testimony of God, God's name, is damaged in some way. And so it's very public, and the ramifications linger for some time. But even though you and I may not be as public as those, those leaders, you and I are not exempt from this sober warning. Peter writes for us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Satan is ready to devour us, to take us down. 
How are we doing, though, as a church? How would you respond if this was written towards us as Edgewood Bible Church? You, Edgewood Bible Church, who boasts in the Bible, it's in your name. Disgrace God by disobeying what the Bible says. For it is written, the name of God is slandered among the unbelievers in Edgewood because of you. Is our church attractive to others who are outside of our church? And I'm not talking about our building, although that's important. When I say church, I mean us. Are we living as an advertisement for God and His mercy and grace so that people say, I want to join that church? Or are we living when we leave this place as an advertisement that says, stay away from that place? God is very concerned for his name, about his word, and about his people who live in the world. Are we as concerned as him? I pray that these thoughts will keep you awake this week, seeking to rely upon God, seeking to obey his word with the help of other Christians, so that we can display a fragrant aroma to our surrounding community of Christ-likeness and that it's really not about us but it's about Christ and what he's done for us. Do you really boast in God more than yourself? I pray it's true that we really do. May we learn to boast to glory in God and not ourselves. He is worthy of our worship, friends. And we're nothing without him. And so let's stay close to him through repentance and faith. And let us live lives as the Lord helps us, just like this tax collector. And in our prayers, repeating and, and rehearsing the same prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And pleading for God to help us to live in faithful ways to him. Let's pray together. Father, if we're honest this morning, we, we know that we all fail. And we're all failures in some way when we look at you. And we have all mocked you, either with our words and our lives. And in some ways, we've brought disdain upon you by our lives. And yet in your grace and your mercy, you have preserved us and you've forgiven us. God, we know that there's one gospel that saves us and keeps us. There's one gospel to which we can cling. This gospel of what Christ has done for us on the cross, where, where justice and mercy meet and you saved us. Help us to live that out this week, we pray, God. Help us to remind ourselves that 
our lives are not meant to be displayed in, in perfect obedience, but a pursuit of faithfulness with you, faithfulness in the word and in prayer. Help us to not leave this place convinced again another week that we somehow can live the Christian life all by ourselves. But I pray that we would invite others into our lives to encourage us, to help us, to admonish us, to help us to repent of our sins and our blindness that we don't see and are unaware of so that we can live lives that represent you well in this, in this community, in this world. We thank you and rejoice in you, God, for saving us. And so we, we ask that you would continue to show us mercy in this life. And may we represent you faithfully in our lives and remember the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And we'll give you all the praise and glory for what you do. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.